Okay, uh, Yahuwah bless everyone, and thank you for joining us uh, in our Bible study for uh, this evening. Uh, before we go ahead and proceed, we ask everyone to please stand for our opening prayer. Almighty Yahuwah, our yes, great Lord. Father in heaven, Amen. thank you so much for blessing us with life and strength. Yes, Despite adversity, despite what is taking place throughout the world, yes, we have perfect peace, O Father, yes, because Lord. we have placed our thoughts and affixed our thinking upon you. Amen. We ask that you please be with us tonight as we study your holy words. Yes, okay. May you send your Holy Spirit, yes. because apart from your spirit, we can understand nothing. Yes. We depend on you at all times. Yes. Please, Father, touch the hearts and the minds of your people yes. all over the world who are going to listen to your holy commands. Amen. Our Lord Yahusha, we praise you as well. Yes. May you stand by the side of your servants today. Yes. Because we need your strength. Yes. We need to grow in faith. And yes. we can only do so as we are deeply rooted in you. Amen. Oh, Father, be with us in our Bible study. Yes. From the beginning oh, until the end. Yes. Even and especially in our prayers. Yes. That, Father, your people shall become stronger. Yes. Stronger than the adversary. Amen. That we can prevail in our faith and complete our journey and race. Amen. We believe, Father, you have listened to our petitions. Yes, For we ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha. Amen. Amen. Okay. All right. Again, thank you so much for attending our Bible History Project for tonight. Our topic for today is Yahuwah Nietzsche. Nisi or Nietzsche. And the reason why this is our topic is because we're now in Exodus chapter 17. So we're going to complete Exodus chapter 17 today. And we're going to see how we can learn from what the Bible has shown us concerning the journey of the people of God. So let's begin with our first slide. We know that uh, this is the journey of the people of Israel. After they left Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea. You can see the Straits of Turan. And the first stop, of course, was there in Marah. In Marah, they complained because they had no water to drink. But God provided for them by means of a miracle. And so they went to Elam, from, El from Elim, they went to the wilderness of Sin. There they complained again because they had no food to eat. But God provided for them using a miracle, the miracle of manna and the quail that God provided for them. From there, they go now to Rephidim, okay? Um, and this is where we're going to begin our studies in the book of Exodus. And so what happens to them there? in uh, Rephidim. Here in Exodus chapter 17, verse 1, at Yahuwah's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of sin and moved from place to place. Eventually, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water there for the people to drink. Take note, when they left the wilderness of sin, they were spiritually recharged because God provided for them. And so at Yahuwah's command, they went from place to place. Take note, they are in the will of God. And so when they stopped and camped at Rephidim, what happened to them there? They encountered trouble. They had no water there for the people to drink. Take note, they were in the will of God. They did not go against the will of God, which goes to, shows up, to show us that we can be in God's will. We can be obedient to the commands of God, but still experience trouble from time to time. Isn't that true? What is that called? It's called a test. 
God permits troubles in our life because he wants to test our faith. God always tests his people because when God tests us, it refines and perfects our faith. However, when God permits these circumstances in our life to take place, what do we need to understand? Keep in mind, every difficult situation that God allows us to experience can make us better or it can make us bitter. It all depends on how we respond. It's unfortunate when people encounter problems, the first thing that they do is to use human wisdom and forget all about God. In fact, they only use prayer as a last resort. The last resort actually should be the first step, right? The reason why people do this is because of what is called the practicality bias. As human beings, people think that praying to God that they cannot see is impractical. It is a waste of time. But as people of God, we believe the first thing we need to do when we face any problem of any kind is to go to our almighty God. Now, granted, there are people who don't believe in God, right? There are people who don't go to God when they have problems and they succeed just fine. And so people think all you need is human wisdom and you'll be fine. However, there are times in our life when practical human solutions to difficulties are not enough. And so when we look at what's happening throughout the world, we are reminded of the limitations of human capability, the limitations of human solutions and human power. Hence, what we need is to reach out to our almighty God. And so what happened to the people of Israel? when they encountered problems like having no water to drink. Verse 2, so once more, the people, what do they do? They complained against Moses, give us water to drink. They demanded, quiet, Moses replied, why are you complaining against me? And why are you taste testing Yahuwah? When people encounter problems that's beyond them, when they look for practical human solutions and it doesn't work, for example, the people of Israel, when they were there in Rephidim, perhaps they did their best to look for water. But despite their ingenuity, they could not find any water because after all, they were in the desert. And so they became desperate. When you become desperate, what do you usually do? You complain. And so they complained against Moses. Not only did they complain, what also did they do? Verse 3, but tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? Some things just don't change, right? The people of Israel, when they got stuck in Rephidim, they had no water to drink. They blamed Moses. So they complain, they blame. And this seems to be the characteristic of Israel. When they were set free because of the ten plagues, and they were about to cross the Red Sea, what did they do? They complained. When they were in Mara, what did they do? They complained. When they were there in the wilderness of sin, what did they do? They complained. Now in Rephidim, what did they do? They complained. And so the symptoms of blame and complaint indicates to us that Israel had a deeper problem. You see, what sometimes we address when we have problems are surface issues. See, the real problem, the root problem, of the people of Israel. You know what it is? 
It's called the lack of faith. They're complaining and blaming, but symptoms of a lack of faith. And so when we find ourselves blaming and complaining because of our situation in life, because of circumstances in life, the root cause, the real disease is a lack of faith, a lack of faith in our all mighty God. This is why we need to learn to build our faith, right? Especially now, because without faith, we'll be overcome by fear. But if we have strong faith, if we build up our faith, that faith will enable us to overcome the fear that paralyzes humanity. So how do we build up our faith? You know, throughout scriptures, God always provides for his people. Like there in the wilderness, God provided, right? The people of Israel saw the crossing of the Red Sea, the pillars of light, the clouds that guided them. They, God provided the manna. God changed the bitter water bitter waters of Marah into sweet water. They know what God is able to do. But in times of trouble, for some reason, they forget all about that. And so to build faith, we need to remember and treasure our experiences with Yahuwah Almighty. I want to ask you a personal question, brothers and sisters. When was the last time you had a personal experience with the Father? and with his son, Yahusha HaMashiach. When they provided for your needs, when you prayed for them in time of trouble and they delivered you, these are the experiences we need to treasure because this will be the building blocks of our faith. The reason why people lose their faith in times of trouble is because to them, God is an abstract idea, is not real. But when we feel the presence of the Father, when we remember what he has done for us in the past, it builds up our faith in the present so that we can face the problems of the future. This is why we encourage all of you, brethren, remember the times of your childhood. Remember yesterday. Remember all those times when God helped you, the miracles he provided you. Write them down in the journal. Because as human beings, we tend to forget things, right? And so if we are reminded of the blessings of our God, the experiences that he has with us, the more our faith can be strengthened and bolstered up. So what did Moses do? Because the people were blaming him and complaining to him. Exodus 17, 4, then Moses cried out to Yahuwah, what should I do with these people? They're, they are ready to stone me. What did Yahuwah or what did Moses decide to do? Because of the problems and the complaining, the Bible says Moses cried out. He prayed to Yahuwah. This is what they should have done in the first place. Prayer should be something that is a priority, not a last resort. And so when Moses cried out to Yahuwah, what was Yahuwah's response? Exodus 17. Five down to six, Yahuwah said to Moses, walk out in front of the people. Take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai, strike the rock, and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock as he was told, and water gushed out as the elders looked on. You know what we just read there? You call that a miracle, right? Have you ever seen a rock produce water before? <laughs> well, that's what God was able to do. 
God produced water from the rock. But to get the water out of the rock, what did God tell Moses to do? To use the staff and to look at the rock, right? And strike the rock and the rock will bring forth water. This is one of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture. You know why? Because it's also prophetic. It shows us how God meets the needs of his people in the present and how God prepares for the future. This passage I read to you, this is a magnificent prophecy of scripture. What kind of prophecy is this? It's called a typological prophecy. Have you heard of a typological prophecy before? What is a typological prophecy? Simply stated, this is actual historical events, like the hitting of the rock with Moses' staff. It was an actual event. It was a historical event and actually took place. It's an actual historical event that point to a greater, more complete fulfillment in redemptive history that contained thematic elements of the original event. And so let's go back to that passage, Exodus 17, 5 to 6. There are four elements in this actual event that point to a greater fulfillment. What's the first one? It mentions the rock, right? You know what that rock typified? What was that pointing to? The rock that released water. Who do you think that is? No? Not Jesus. <laughs> Yahusha. Yahusha HaMashiach. What's the proof? Corinthians 10 verse 4. And all of them drank the same spiritual water, for they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them. And that rock was Christ. Does it mean that Christ was actually there? Was he the actual rock? No. This is symbolism. This is typology. Apostle Paul was given an explanation of the type of Christ that was there with Moses being the rock that provided water. What else? Another element is in verse 6. Yahuwah says, I will stand on the rock and be with you. And so what does that mean? How was that fulfilled? In the book of Luke, chapter 3, 21 to 22, when all the people were being baptized, Yahusha was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. And so when Yahuwah said to Moses, I will be with the rock, on the rock as I speak to you, right? What was that in reference to? It was pointing to the day when Yahusha would be baptized and Yahuwah would say to the people, this is my son. Listen to him because with him, I am well pleased. It was the appointment of the ministry of Yahusha Hamashiach. Isn't it a nice prophecy, right? What else? Let's go back to Exodus 17, 5 to 6. It says there's strike the rock. And so what was that in fulfillment of? Isaiah 53, 4 down to 5. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And so when 
Yahuwah instructed Moses to strike the rock. Why did he do that? Because he was pointing us to a, a greater and more beautiful fulfillment when Yahuwah will give up his son and his son will suffer so that we can be healed and we can have peace. When was this fulfilled? When Yahushua was nailed to the cross and paid for our sins. And one more prophetic element. In verse 6, it says there, strike the rock and water will come gushing out. How was that fulfilled? What does the water symbolize or represent in this typological prophecy? Let's read in the book of John 7, 37, 39. On the last and most important day of the festival, Yahushua stood up and said in a loud voice, whoever is thirsty should come to me and whoever believes in me should drink. As the scripture says, streams of life-giving water will pour out from his side. Yahushua said this about the spirit which those who believed in him were going to receive. At that time, the spirit has not yet been given because Yahushua had not been raised to glory. So Yahushua, when he was here on earth, he was speaking about a future event, which has already come, when Yahushua will be taken up to glory. And when that time comes, there in heaven, he sends the power of the Holy Spirit, which was typified by the water there in Rephidim. This is why the event there at Rephidim was a historical event, right? The people of Israel did not know that, but Yahuwah knew that. Yahuwah set up the event nicely to prepare the people of Israel for a blessing. If you look at Exodus 17, 5 down to 6, in verse 6, it says, I will stand. Yahuwah is going to appoint the rock. Who is the rock? Yahusha Hamashiach. What will happen to him? He'll be stricken, put to death. And when that happens, and he goes to heaven after the resurrection, the Holy Spirit shall be given to us. And so in 17, 5 to 6 of the book of Exodus, Yahuwah is telling us this. When we have problems in our life, not only does he provide for our needs, he's always thinking of our future. The people of Israel have no idea what all that meant. But Yahuwah knows what he was doing. You know, sometimes there are events in our life that doesn't make any sense. And so we need to place our trust in the hands of our God. Yahuwah Almighty not only satisfies our temporal needs or our needs here on earth, but also provides for our eternal needs. Praises be to Yahuwah our God. And so after this miracle, what did what happened to them? Let's read now what it says in the book of Exodus 17, verse 7. Moses named the place Masa, which means test, and Meribah, which means arguing, because the people of Israel argued with Moses and tested Yahuwah. Is Yahuwah here with us or not? And so when we come to a place of Masa, a place of testing, let us try and control ourselves from arguing or complaining, thinking in our minds, is Yahuwah here with us or not? He is with us. Why? Because Yahuwah has a promise that he will give his spirit. And so he named the place Masa and Meribah to remind them that every time they feel like complaining, every time they 
they're being tested, what should they do? They should place their trust in the hands of Yahuwah, our God. So while they were rested, they had drink, right? They're tired and weary because of the travel. What happened next? Exodus 17, verse 8. While the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. Oh boy, were the people of Israel, were they ready for an attack? I don't think so. I mean, there's no verse in the Holy Bible that tells us that the people of Israel, when they were in Egypt, they were used as soldiers. <laughs> they have no idea how to fight, right? What were they? They were builders of, the, yeah, using bricks. They were builders of the pyramids, builders of the buildings of uh, yeah, Pharaoh. I mean, they did not know how to fight. And remember, they had women with them, children with them. And all of a sudden, Amalekites, not just Amalekites, but the warriors of Amalek, they attacked them. You know how God felt about that? This is what it says in Exodus 17, 14. After the victory, Yahuwah instructed Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You know, God is pretty upset with the Amalekites. So much so that he said something that he hasn't really said about any civilization before. He said, I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Apparently, Yahuwah, our God, was really, really angry by what the Amalekites did. Why? Why was God really angry? The book of Deuteronomy actually gives us insight on this. In Deuteronomy 25, 17, 18, remember what the Amalekites did to you. On your trip from Egypt, they attacked you when you were tired and exhausted and killed all those who were lagging behind. They weren't afraid of God. What really got Yahuwah really angry because of what the Amalekites did. If you look at the book of Deuteronomy, it mentions there that the Amalekites attacked from behind, right? And they killed those who were lagging behind. Who do you think those who were lagging behind are? Who do you think they are? Powerful soldiers? No. Who do you think they are? Women, the elderly, the children. What does that show you about the character of the father? He doesn't like oppression. He doesn't like oppression. Haven't you noticed throughout scripture, you read the book of Isaiah, you read the book of prophets, if there was one sin God was really, really angry with, it is the sin of oppression. You know what oppression is? It's when you use your authority and your power to inflict harm against those who are helpless. That's oppression. When you have been given power, authority, what does God expect that you will do with that power? To help the weak. Not to take advantage and abuse the weak. God is angry with that. This is why... God wants that written down. He told Moses, have this written down. Tell Joshua when the time comes that the history of the Amalekites must be erased from under heaven. But you know what? This is the style of our greatest adversary. Who is our greatest adversary? The devil, not the Amalekites. They were just instruments of the devil. Our greatest adversary today is the devil. And what makes him really dangerous is the fact that he's invisible, right? And so he will practice strategies so that we can be caught off guard so that he can destroy us. Look what the Amalekites did. 
what were the two, the two strategies that they used. It says here uh, that they attacked when they were tired and exhausted. That was the timing of the attack. What else? It shows us they attacked from behind. It shows you that they were looking for vulnerabilities and weaknesses. And so when there's the when and where of enemy attacks that we need to be mindful of, what are they? Well, the enemy will look for an opportunity to destroy your life when you're tired and exhausted, when you're stressed out, when you're overwhelmed. Guess what? It's an opening for the devil to mess up your life. What are you feeling now? What are many people feeling nowadays? They're, dis they're desperate. They're distressed, right? Guess what? That's a perfect opportunity for the adversary, for the devil, to try and destroy our faith. What else? He will attack where we are weak and vulnerable because he will not attack us where we're strong. He will look at our weaknesses, and that'll be the opening. There'll be an opportunity for him to try and destroy our faith. And so what do we need to do so that when the enemy tries and ruin our faith, we can defend successfully? The book of Mark 14:38. keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Yahusha, our Lord says, we need to be on watch. Why? Because we live in evil days, evil times. There's going to be distresses all over the earth. And so if we are not watchful, it could be that we leave that door slightly open for the enemy to come in and destroy our life. And so we need to keep watch. We need to pray so that we can overcome the adversary of our faith. And so what did Moses tell Joshua to do? when they were facing the enemy called the Amalekites. Exodus 17, 9 to 10. Before I read this passage, brethren, I know that so many people today, all of, all of us, right? Not just the Yahushans, or called Yahushans, not just the Yahushans, but all over the world, people are facing a battle, right? We all have a common enemy now. What is that common enemy? Coronavirus. And if you think about the coronavirus, it kind of attacked without announcement, right? A surprise attack. And what makes the coronavirus a viable enemy is the fact that it's invisible, right? And it's also taking advantage of humanity's weakness. You know what that is? International travel. <laughs> the fact that there's international travel, what happened to the virus? It gave the virus access to everyone's homes. This is why it's spreading so fast. The United States today, right? It's the biggest, I guess. It has the no number one incidence of uh, coronavirus infections. And so we really have to be careful. We need to know how can we prevail? How can we defeat this enemy that we're facing now? And I believe we can learn something for, from how Moses and the people of Israel defeated the Amalekites. Remember, when you look, at the situation, when you look at the people of Israel, who they were and who they were facing, warriors who were trained for battle, I mean, it's really no contest, right? And so let's go ahead and look at how they were able to prevail and get the victory over the enemy. In Exodus 17, 9 down to 10, it says, Moses commanded Joshua, choose some men 
to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. And so we get our first clue right here. What did Moses tell Joshua? Choose some men. When it says choose some men, what is involved? It involves our mind. We're trying to come up with a strategy. We come up with a plan. Don't choose everyone, but choose some men who can give you an advantage, right? And so what does that tell us concerning the first thing that we have to do? Number one, when we face the enemy, plan a strategy. I mean, there's a nice plan set already, right, concerning coronavirus. What's the plan? <laughs> Quarantine! But there are people who are stubborn and hard-headed. <laughs> what do they do? They go to the beach. What do, they, what do some do? They secretly meet in places where they should not be secretly meeting, violating the mandates of the law or the government, right? I mean, we have to plan a strategy. We have a strategy. Whatever you're facing, whatever adversity you're facing, the first thing we need to do, we need to plan, right? We need to plan a strategy. What else did uh, Moses and Joshua do? Exodus 17, 9 to 10, uh, Moses commanded Joshua to some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. There are people who are good at planning, but not very good at implementation, right? They plan and plan and plan, but they don't carry out what they plan to do. This is why their life is going nowhere. If we're facing some kind of problem, if we have a goal that we want to achieve, it's good to plan, but we also have to take serious action. Serious action. Planning by itself is useless. We need to plan and then carry out with, with seriousness and engagement the action that we plan to do. But is that enough? In the book of Exodus 17, 9 to 10, Joshua planned, Joshua implemented, but what was Moses going to do? Let's read the rest of the verse. Tomorrow, Moses said, I will stand at the top of the hill, holding the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did what Moses had commanded and fought the army of Amalek. Meanwhile, Moses, Aaron, and her climbed to the top of a nearby hill. And so here's Moses. We already know what Joshua's part is, to fight, right? To come up with a military strategy and fight. What was the role of Moses? He was going to use the staff of God, going to go to the hill. And what are they going to do in that hill? 11 and 12, as long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. But whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. I want to pause there for a while. Can you see, can you get a visual on this? So he's on top of the hill. Perhaps Moses was visible uh, to the Israelites. They can see each other. Moses can see what's happening. And the people of Israel in the battlefield can see Moses on top of the hill. What, does, what is he doing? He's holding up his hands. With one hand carrying the staff of God, right? And so long as he had his staff up, his hands up, what happened to Israel? They were winning. But when he let his hands down, what happened to Israel? They were losing. And so this tells us something. It's pretty important to keep your hands up. Right? In fact, it's so important. What did her and Aaron do? Verse 12, Moses' arms soon became so tired, he could no longer hold them up. 
So Aaron and her found a stone for him to sit on. Okay. Then, then they stood on each side of Moses, holding up his hands. So his hands held steady until sunset. Isn't that nice? Moses got tired because he was a human being. He had to hold up his hands for a long, long time. Have you ever tried that before? Hold up your hands for a long, long time. You might develop cramps on your shoulders, right? And so what did Aaron and her do? They got a stone for him, sit down, because it's also going to take, it's also going to fatigue his legs. So sit down and Moses, I mean, her and Aaron, they went to both of his sides and lifted up his hands. And so together, what did they do? They held up their hands to who? Yahuwah, our God. And because they did this, what happened? But by the way, do you know what that means, lifting up your hands? What does that represent? Lifting up your hands to God. I think we need to know because this is the most important part of how we can defeat and overcome our enemy, including the enemy called the coronavirus. Lifting up your hands. When you look at scripture, what does that indicate? What does that show? Well, if you look at Psalm 63 verse 4, I will praise you as long as I live and in your name, I will lift up my Hands. So what does it mean to lift up your hands? It means to praise Yahuwah. How can we praise Yahuwah properly? By mentioning his name. <laughs> because when you say praise, of course, the person being praised need to be identified. Because when we say just God, it's pretty vague. There are many gods out there, right? So-called gods. Anyways. But Yahuwah's name, when we use it to praise Yahuwah, when we use his name to exalt Yahuwah. And that's what raising our hands actually means. What else is involved? In Psalms 28 verse 2, Listen to my prayer for mercy as I cry out to you for help, as I lift my hands toward your holy sanctuary. What does raising your hand towards Yahuwah also mean? It means praying to our Father. And so praise and prayer that's a big part of what we need to do when we are facing the enemy. So we plan a strategy, we take serious action, and we labor in praise and prayer. Did you notice how Moses labored? It wasn't easy, right? Sometimes we, when we think about prayer, we simply casually pray. We don't put any effort in that prayer. We don't put any heart in that prayer. We don't put any zeal in that prayer. So that we were just praying just to be able to say we prayed. Brethren, we have to put the labor in our work of prayer. Because when we work, we work. But when we pray, who works? Yeah. And that makes all the difference. This is why we should never think that prayer is impractical. It's the most practical thing we can do as people of God. Because when we pray to the Father, it is the opportunity for God to intervene, for God to help us overcome the enemy. And so when Moses continued his prayer, what happened with Joshua's fight? Exodus 17, 13, as a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. And so he was able to prevail. It was a unanimous decision, right? The Amalekites didn't know what hit him. 
Surely they, they really didn't know what hit them. Why? Who hit them? <laughs> it wasn't Joshua. Who was the one who hit them? That was Yahuwah because of the prayer of Moses. And so when we face problems, when we face adversaries, what must we must always pray as though everything depended on God. Okay? What does that mean? We labor in prayer. However, it doesn't mean prayer is a, an excuse for laziness because there are those who pray, but they don't do anything. And so when we pray as though everything depended on God, we must also work as though everything depended on us. I mean, after all, Joshua did have to fight. He wasn't on a recliner enjoying the weather. He went to the battlefield and fought. We have to do our part. We have to go to the battlefield, get our hands dirty. We have to fight. But we also have to fight in prayer. We have to pray as best as we can and work as best as we can if we do that we will prevail. And so we're facing a deadly foe right now, coronavirus. God gave us the recipe. God gave us the blueprint for how to succeed. It involves prayer. What kind of prayer should we offer to God? In the book of Ephesians 6, verse 18, pray in the spirit. That's important. We need to pray in the spirit in every situation. Use every kind of prayer and request there is. For the same reason, be alert. Use Every kind of effort to make every kind of request for all of God's people. You don't get a sense of a, a casual prayer here, right? You know, like when you pray for food, your father, please bless his food. Amen. Casual prayer. That's not going to work here. We're facing a, a deadly foe, and so we need to put some seriousness in our prayer. Pray in the Spirit. Bible says, Make every kind of effort, make every kind of request, make every kind of prayer. Did you know there are different kinds of prayer? Right? There are many different kinds of prayer. There's the congregational prayer. Should we engage in congregational prayer? Yeah. There's the prayer for each other. Should we pray for each other? Well, absolutely. That's powerful when we pray for each other. But you know what? The best kind of prayer of all is the one Yahusha practiced. Yahushua HaMashiach. You know what kind, of what kind of prayer he prayed? Let's read the book of Mark, 135. Now, in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed. You know, when we tell you to be fervent in your prayer, brethren, the best way to be able to express ourselves in prayer is when you pray by yourself. Just you and who? Yeah. Why? Because you can bear your soul. No holds barred. You say anything and everything you need to say. When Yahushua prayed, he prayed by himself. He would withdraw again and again to a solitary place to pray to the Father. Why? Because he's the only one that we really need. This is why, brethren, do not rely on other people to pray for you. Yes, it's good that we pray for each other, but first and foremost, learn to pray to Yahuwah on your own. Follow the good example of Yahusha. Let us bolster our personal prayers to the Father. But let's also keep in mind, having said that, when we have personal prayer, when we are in solitude, when we pray on our own, and we can really pour out our heart in God and pray as long as we want. We can pray for hours. Yahusha prayed for hours because he was by himself. But don't do that in a congregational prayer. 
right? Two minute limit, that's it, for congregational prayer. But remember Ephesians 6 verse 18, it says pray in the spirit in every situation. And so sometimes there are situations which require different kinds of prayer. What we're facing today is a global epidemic, a pandemic, as they say. And so this requires a global prayer, right? This is why we have decided to implement what God said to the people of Israel when they were in captivity. What is that? Jeremiah 29 verse 7. Work for the good of the cities where I have made you go as prisoners. Pray to me on their behalf. It's called intercessory prayer. When we pray on behalf of someone else. Because if they are prosperous, you will be prosperous too. You know what I read to you there is God's command to the people of Israel after the captivity, when they were prisoners in Babylon. And you know what God said to the people of Israel? Do not pray that Babylon will fall. God said, pray that Babylon will continue to be prosperous. Why? Yahuwah said, if they are prosperous, you will be prosperous too. And so God is telling us, let's pray for the world. They may not, not all of them may believe in Yahuwah are gone, but we should pray on behalf of the world. We should collectively pray together, pray an intercessory prayer because we're facing a common foe, the coronavirus. And so we invite you, brothers and sisters, to join us in prayer every Friday. That begins tomorrow, by the way, at 8 o'clock p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We live in the midst of fear, panic, and great distress. Let us together call on Yahuwah Almighty for deliverance. Join us in prayer. Psalms 107, 20, 29, that in their trouble, they called to Yahuwah, and he saved them from their distress. He calmed the raging storm, and the waves became quiet. That's what we need right now. And so beginning tomorrow, we invite all of you, brothers and sisters, let us pray to Yahuwah in the name of Yahusha. And so this is what Moses did. He prayed. And when Joshua went into the battlefield, they were victorious. And so after the victory, what did Moses do? Let's read Exodus 17, verse 15. Moses built an altar and named it, Yahuwah is my banner. What does that mean? Yahuwah is my banner. Well, let's go and look at the Hebrew word of that name, Yahuwah is my banner. Let's go to Exodus. I don't know if you can see this, but the highlighted term, the Lord is my banner in Hebrew is actually just two words. It's a two word name. Do you see it? Yeah, do you see the highlighted part? Can you see the Hebrew uh, script? Probably cannot see the Hebrew script. Can you see Yahuwah there? The tetragrammaton? Yeah. And the word that follows that, that is banner. Right? Do you see it? What does that mean? In Hebrew, it is Yahuwah Nietzsche. Yahuwah Nietzsche. Remember what the meaning of Yahuwah is. I am who I am. God can take the form of whatever we Need. This is why, so remember in the book of Psalms 23, 1 down to 5, I am who I am tells us God can be whoever he needs to be. Sometimes he needs to be Yahuwah or Ofeka when we 
have a disease, when we have an illness. God can be our healer, and we can turn to him for miraculous healing of any kind. Sometimes what we need is for God to be Yahuwah Nietzsche, right? God is my banner. Today we need God to be God who is our banner. Why? Why do we need God to be Yahuwah Nietzsche? What does Nietzsche mean? Let's go ahead and take a look at the Hebrew word. There it is. Can you see it? Right? So what are some of the elements of that word? What does it mean? What do we need to understand when we say banner? Because Yahuwah is my banner. Well, if you look at Nietzsche, one definition is flag, right? A flag. I mean, what do you notice about a flag? Is it invisible? <laughs> when you see it, I mean, it kind of stands out, doesn't it? Everyone can see it. It's obvious. And so Yahuwah is my banner. You know, it has an element of being evident, okay? Visible for the eyes to see. It becomes obvious, no longer hidden. What is hidden must be proclaimed. You get where I'm getting at? <laughs> okay, what else? It's a standard, ensign, signal, a sign. It's also a sign. And so if it is a sign, it is involving your identity. You know how you have mascots, right? When you have teams, you have a name for that team. Like my, my daughter, Cougars, right? Evergreen Cougars. So my daughter's like, Cougar. You identify with a Cougar? She's waving her head. No, I'm not a Cougar dad. <laughs> cougars, you know, so, so it's a sign. And when we have the American flag, for example, right? We identify with it. The flag is visible, something we can identify with. And you put it on the pole so that it'll be visible to everyone. But there's also another meaning to it. If you look at this definition in 1A, a standard as a rallying point. What does that mean? It's something that will serve as inspiration when you're going into battle. Just like in Exodus 17 verse, 15. So it's a rallying point. And so when we look at the banner, what does it signify? Number one, visibly conspicuous. Number two, it's a source of identity, right? Number three, it's a rallying point, the source for inspiration, encouragement, so that you can have the inspi inspiration to go on with the fight. And number four, number four, it's used in battle. So in biblical times, when the banner was raised, it means there's some kind of war going on. It's kind of battle taking place. It means God has announced that uh, I'm going to fight. And when God announces he's going to fight, you want to be on his side, not against him, right? This is why we need to make Yahuwah as our banner. So how do we hold high? What does that mean to hold high the banner of Yahuwah? Number one, we have to proclaim the name of Yahuwah because he's our banner. He, it has to be visible. It has to be conspicuous. When we say just God, it's not conspicuous. There's some hidden parts. God wants to be known as Yahuwah. I mean, if God did not want to be known as Yahuwah, then okay. But it's evident from Scripture because of the fact His name has been written some 7,000 times. It's evident God wants us to know His name, and God wants us to proclaim His name. 
And so when we proclaim his name, we are holding high the banner of Yahuwah. What else? We need to profess that we belong to Yahuwah. This is why we often say, Yahuwah is my God. When we do that, we're holding high the banner of Yahuwah. What else? Yahuwah becomes the source of our strength and inspiration. Because when we are in a battle or when we are in a fight, what we need, brethren, is strength that comes not from within, but from God, who gives us strength that can overcome the foe. Number four, we need to praise and pray to Yahuwah. We need to use his name in our prayer and declare praise to his name. What else? We need to fight for our faith. We need to do our part in the name of Yahuwah Almighty. And so this is how we hold high the banner of Yahuwah. Right now, there's so many things we're facing, right? Coronavirus is just one part. There's so many things. Persecution, right? Opposition, right? The economy. Um, earthquakes, threats of uh, nuclear war, natural disasters. There's so many things that can be considered our adversary in these times. What we need is to hold high the banner of Yahuwah by doing all these things. And when we are, are able to hold high the banner of Yahuwah, do you know what that means? Do you know what's going to happen next? Let's read Exodus 17. Verse 16, the final passage of Exodus 17, he said, hold high, hold high the banner of Yahuwah. Yahuwah will continue to fight against the Amalekites forever. Did you see that? See, when we raise the banner of Yahuwah, we proclaim his name, we profess we belong to him, we rely on him for strength and inspiration. Guess what? Yahuwah will fight for those who hold that banner, for those who hold it high. Yahuwah will be with them and for them, and he will fight for them forever. And so, brethren, we encourage all of you to hold up that banner high because we are in a battle right now. Our faith is being tested. We need to make sure we win the fight of our faith. Fight the fight of your faith using the mighty name of Yahuwah and the name of his son, Yahusha because this is our source of inspiration. We want to glorify our almighty Father, okay? All right, that's our lesson, but we're not yet done. We're halfway done. Uh, next is our mailbox. We only have one mm, item on the inbox for today, and it is this one. Uh, somebody sent this to me, and it concerns Isaiah 59, 20 to 21. In Tagalog, it says, uh, Isaiah 59, 2021, And then there was a reply. Ano po ang nais ninyong iparating sa amin gamit ang talata? And so the one who raised the issue of Isaiah 59, 20 said, Ang Espiritu ng Diyos at ang kanyang salita ay inilagay ng Diyos sa bibig ng kanyang lahi at angkan. Okay? What's angkan mean? Tribe? <laughs> Descendants? Yeah? Okay. At hindi hihiwalay sa yung bibig o sa bibig ng yung lahi o sa bibig man ng angka ng yung lahi from Ka-Felix to Ka-Erdi at sa bibig ng kanyang angkan. And so the purpose of Isaiah 59, 20 to 21 
for this person who raised the question is according to Isaiah 59, 20 to 21, those who are only the only people who can rightfully uh, teach the Bible are those who came from the lineage of Brother Felix Y. Manal. Okay. So basically in English, it's saying the following. They say that the words of God can only be preached, can only be taught, right? By Brother Felix Y. Manalo, Brother Iran G. Manalo, and their descendants, according to Isaiah 59, 22, 21. Now, do we believe Brother Felix Manalo is a messenger? Yes, we've already mentioned that in our worship service. We believe that, okay? However, we should limit, limit our idea of who Brother Felix Y. Manalo is to what the Bible says. We must not go beyond that, because if we go beyond that, we're committing sin against our father. And so does Isaiah 59, 20 to 21 actually teach us that only Brother Felix Manalo, Brother Irania Manalo, and his um, descendants are they the only source by which we can understand the will of God during these times? Because what's happening now, um, we all left the institution, right? Because we made an evaluation using the Bible as our standard we figure out something's not making sense, and so we choose to follow Yahuwah and Yahusha. And so now the question comes up, you know, we should not teach any anything that was never taught by the Sugo. We should not teach anything that was ever taught by Brother Irani Manala. We should not teach anything that was ever taught by any of the children of Brother Irani G. Manalo, because to do so would be in violation of Isaiah 59, 20 to 21. And so let's go ahead and look at the Isaiah 59 verse. This is what it says, uh, Isaiah 59, 20, 21. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares uh, Yahuwah. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says Yahuwah, my spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of their descendants from this time on and forever says Yahuwah. So that's what it says in Isaiah 59, 20 down to 21. And according to the one who made the post, um, it's only the descendants of Brother Felix Y. Manalo who can give us any kind of teaching from the Holy Bible. However, is that what the Bible says? Because if that's true, then the words you and you're there, if you look at the uh, passage, my spirit who is on you, right? Underline word. And my words that I have put in your mouth, well, the pronoun you there, it must be referring to who? Brother Felix Y. Manalo. But is that true? Is the pronoun you there where it says, my spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth, is it referring to Brother Felix Y. Manalo? I don't think so. Why? Well, just look at this passage. Who is it referring to? It says, my covenant with them. And so we need to understand the context of Isaiah 59, right? Because if you take it out of context and we don't understand the whole chapter, we can make up any conclusion that we want. And so there is a them referred to in Isaiah. And this them is what Isaiah 59 is all about. And so this is the outline of Isaiah 59. It only has uh, 21 verses. Isaiah 59.1 determines the subject of what Isaiah 59 is all about. It's about the people of God. So the you there refers to the people of God as a whole. Okay, from the time of the beginning up until the end of the Christian era. Isaiah 59.1. 59.2, 
It introduces to what caused the apostasy of the people of God. Because throughout scripture, what do the people of God do? They commit sin because of sin. They drift away from God. They fall away from faith. And they no longer become the people of God. As a matter of fact, they become an adversary. The people of God often and always become adversaries of God because of the stubbornness of his people. We saw that in Exodus today, did we not? Right, so it's a pattern that repeats itself again and again. And then Isaiah 59, 3 to 16, it describes the different sins that lead God's people to apostasy. And then 17 to 18, God is telling us, I, I had enough. And this is what he, it, it mentioned. God prepares to fight against his enemy. God actually raises a banner. When God raises a banner, it means he's going to fight against his enemy. That's Isaiah 59, 17 to 18. And in verse 19, it mentions a prophecy about the ends of the earth. Because after all, his work concerning the people of God will extend all the way to the ends of the earth. And so he mentions that in Isaiah 59, 19. And then 20 to 21 concerns the promise of God for the entirety of the Christian era. We'll look at that. Is that okay? Do we have time to look at every one of, the, one of these things? We're going to go through the entire chapter. So get your coffee, get your popcorn. Let's go to Isaiah 59, verse 1. So it says, Behold, Yahuwah's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy, that it cannot hear. And so God is speaking on behalf of his people, right? His people, Israel. Isaiah 59 is about the people of God, the people of God in general, who will become eventually the Christians. So God, the subject of Isaiah 59 is, are the people of God and not one person, not one family, okay? Not one country, not one community, but the people of God as a whole. Isaiah 59, 2. So, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So if Brother Felix Solalo was the one referred to by you in Isaiah 59, verse 20, then it means God has hidden his face from him. <laughs> Do you see that? It doesn't make sense, right? That's because it's referring to the people of God and what happens when the people of God live in sin. What happens when the people of God live in sin? Bible says God will hide his face from him. Not only that, when the people of God continue to sin, they do not want to repent. In other, in other verses of the Bible, like Isaiah 63, 8 to 10, uh, Yahuwah said, they are my people, right? They will not deceive me. And so he saved them from all their suffering. It was not an angel, but Yahuwah himself who saved them. In his love and compassion, he rescued them. He had always taken care of them in the past. But what happened? They rebelled against him and made his Holy Spirit sad. So Yahuwah became their enemy and fought against them. And so this is what happens again and again and again in biblical history. God sets apart a people. What does he do? He provides for them. He raises them up like children. They grow up mighty and strong. God fulfills his promise. And what happens? They forget God. Not only do they forget God, they rebel against God. And so eventually they become the enemies of God. We see that happening all the time. And Isaiah 59 is warning us about that pattern because it's going to happen again right before the end comes. And so 
There's the outline again. We finish with one, two. And so what are the sins that God accuses his people of? That has been repeated also during our time in every dispensation. What are the sins that lead God's people to apostasy so that they end up becoming God's adversary? Isaiah 59, 3, you are guilty of lying, violence, and murder. Can you imagine the people of God lying? Doesn't make any sense, right? It's incongruent. Violence and murder. What else? In verse 4, no one cares about their being fair and honest. The people's lawsuits are based on lies. They conceive evil deeds and they give birth to sin. And so they file lawsuits one after the other. But it's based on lies. That's what the Bible says. Okay. What else? The Bible says all their activities filled with sin. Huh? Violence is their trademark. These are the people of God. Sometimes when a, a nation of God becomes powerful, they use the power no longer to help. Right? But to oppress. At that point, they become the adversary of God. You get that? Even if before God took care of them and blessed them, when they reached the tipping point, when they used the power God has blessed them with for their own authority to abuse and carry out acts of violence, they become the enemy of God. What else? Eight to nine. Uh, the ways of peace they do not know. There's no justice in their paths. Justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. And so when God's nation no longer implements justice because they have opened the door to bribery, accepting gifts and bribes. That nation is no longer gone. They're turning away from the Father. Okay, what else? 10 down to 12, we grope like the blind along a wall, feeling our way like people without eyes among the living. We are like the dead. We look for rescue so far away from us. It's like they grope in the dark. It's like they don't know what they're doing. You know, like what's happening today, right? There are people of God who don't know what they're going to do. Are we going to do this? You know, some people do, are doing that. In another region, they're doing this. There's mass confusion. What are we going to do? <laughs> right? Why? It's because it's like they're feeling their way without eyes. What else? 13, they have rebelled. How so? Here it is. We have oppressed others and turned away from you. You see, when God has blessed you and God has prospered you, but you use that blessing and prosperity to oppress, that's rebellion against God. And when one is guilty of rebellion against God, they have become the adversary or the enemy of our Almighty Father. Keep that in mind because oftentimes the number one enemy of God, God's people. <laughs> God's people who turn against Him for some reason. They turn against Him all the time. What else? 14 to 15. On court, suppose uh, the righteous and justice is nowhere to be found. Yes, truth is gone. And anyone who renounces evil is attacked. Yahuwah looked and was displeased to find there was no justice. And so when there are people who protest, or when people uh, tell the people of God's nation, you know, this is wrong. This should not be happening. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? What happens to them? They get reprimanded, they get renounced, they get attacked, right? Do you see that happening? <laughs> I'm not going to mention any names. It's up to you to put the dots together. What else? Verse 16, he was amazed. Yehovah was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. So he himself stepped in to save them with a strong arm and his justice sustained him. 
And so Yahuwah was amazed. Not one single person was willing to say, stop, what we're doing is wrong. They let the leaders do whatever they want to do and the people of God offer no objections. Let us just practice unity, even if we're being united to what is against the will of the Father. And amaze the Father. How the people of God can be so blind. They cannot see that what they're being made to do is already against the will of God. And so if you object in any way, they will say, you're easily offended, brother. Matitisuring ka naman. Kaya kayo natiwalagi kasi matitisuring kayo. God was amazed. No one intervened. God was amazed. No one spoke up. When there was oppression. When there was uh, wickedness taking place. And so what did God decide to do when he saw all this clicking one after the other? This is what it says in 17 uh, 18. The fifth, the fourth part of uh, the outline, right? In 17 to 18, this is what it says. He put on righteousness as his body armor. When God begins to put a body armor, what does that mean? <laughs> He's going to fight, right? He's going to raise up his banner and place the helmet of salvation. So he's got the breastplate. He's got the armor. He's got the helmet. He clothed himself with a robe of vengeance and wrapped himself in a cloak of divine of passion. He will repay his enemies for their evil deeds. His fury will fall on his foes. He will pay them back even to the ends of the earth. You know what God is saying there? God is telling us, if there are adversaries of the faith, even if it's right before the end of the world, God will act in vengeance. He will not tolerate that. We live in the end times. And so God is telling us, even if it's all the way to the ends of the earth, when judgment day is at hand, if they go against the will of God, if they practice the sins mentioned and outlined in verses 3 down to 16, God will declare that nation or that people as his enemy. This is why after he mentions to the ends of the earth, he gives us a prophecy about the ends of the earth, what will happen in the ends of the earth. What is that? In verse 19, right? The prophecy about the ends of the earth. So shall they fear the name of Yahuwah from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun when the enemy comes in like a flood. The spirit of Yahuwah will lift up a standard against him. And so... In verse 19, it mentions the events of the ends of the earth. What will happen? God's glory will be seen in the rising of the sun. In other words, the church that began in the Philippines in 1914 is going to rise because God will take care of them. Right? Did that, was it, did that happen? Did it become powerful? Yeah. And when it will reach glory there in the rising of the sun, what will happen next? It will reach the far west. Did it reach the far west? Yeah. It reached the far west. However, what also did God warn us about? He said, the spirit of Yahuwah will lift up a standard against him. You know, this had uh, multiple fulfillments. The first time it was, it was fulfilled, how was it fulfilled? What did Brother Iranya Manala mention as the meaning of the spirit of Yahuwah that will lift up, lift up a standard against him? Let's read what it says in, I want to go back to that verse, by the way. Uh, the spirit of Yahuwah will lift up a stand against it. So if that word you mentioned in Isaiah 59.1 is referring to Brother Felix Manalo, then Yahuwah is going to lift up a standard against him. And 
that would not be good, right? So what did the, this, is, this is what Kaerdi, in his, one of his lessons in the worship service, concerning uh, the meaning of uh, the standard. God, in Isaiah 59, 19, God is the one who has lifted up a standard, right? Isaiah 59, 19. Brethren, the note, uh, take note of the verse that we just read from the Bible, which states, when the enemy shall come in like a flood, take note, the enemy can be someone other than the people of God, or the people of God themselves can be what? The enemies. This is what Isaiah 59 is all about. How the people of God can become the worst enemy of God because they rebel against him. And so when the enemy comes like a flood, the spirit of Yahuwah shall lift up a standard against him. And so the next question in the lesson is, what does it mean that the spirit of Yahuwah shall lift up a standard? And then Kaerdi uh, used Jeremiah 50 in the verses 2. And he, no he notes there, God will proclaim or make his nation known. You see, whenever there is apostasy taking place, whenever the people of God is being challenged, Yahuwah is going to make a proclamation. He will raise a standard. What does that mean? Let's read Jeremiah 50 in the verses 2. Declare among the nations, proclaim. And it involves proclaiming, right? And set up a standard. Proclaim. Do not conceal it. What does it mean? When it says uh, that Yahuwah, the spirit of Yahuwah is going to lift up a standard. Notice the terms lift up a standard against him. What does that mean? It involves preaching or proclaiming. And I did further study on Jeremiah 50, the Hebrew word of Jeremiah 52, standard. And this is what the Hebrew says. Look at that. What does it say? Flag, ensign, what else? Banner. In other words, God is lifting up a banner, which means he's going to go against whoever the enemy may be. And so if before the enemy was a, another entity, sometimes the enemy, which is what Isaiah 59 is all about, are the people of God themselves. And so this time, what is God going to do? You notice in Isaiah 59 verse 19, it says that when the enemy comes, take note, all these events are going to take place during the ends of the earth, right? So shall they fear the name of Yahuwah from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun when the enemy comes. And so apparently the prophet Isaiah in his prophecy is telling us even after reaching glory, there's going to be an enemy that will emerge. Do you see that? Even after reaching the West, there's going to be an enemy that will emerge. And what will Yahuwah do? It says the spirit of Yahuwah, he will lift up a standard against him, a banner against him. In other words, God will proclaim war against him. In other words, God will work with the very small remnant of what's left of God's people, and he will use them as his instrument. This is why 19 tells us not only about the glory of God's people during the ends of the earth, but also the coming enemy that will be driven by God's spirit. And then after that is Isaiah 59, 20 to 21, which is the promise during the Christian era. Let's go to 
Go ahead and take a look at that. The Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins. I want to pause it for a while. Who is that Redeemer promise there? Yahushua. And so he's talking about the Christian era. So 20 to 21 is about the work of Yahuwah in the Christian era, beginning with the Redeemer. Who is the Redeemer? Yahusha, the Christ Yahusha, Hamashiach. And so what is he going to do? What is the promise in the Christian era? Verse 21, as for me, this is my covenant with them. This is why this is about the New Testament, the New Covenant, that Yahusha will make, or Yahuwah will make through Yahusha. Okay, this is why it's about the Christian era. My spirit who is on you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of their descendants or from, from this time on and forever, says Yahuwah. And so, because the promise is for the entirety of the Christian era, the you there and the you're there does not refer to Brother Felix Carmelo. Because it refers to the totality of God's people in the Christian era. But did you notice the pattern there in Isaiah 59, 21? How many here see what has been revealed by the Apostle Peter? Do you see that there in Isaiah 59? This is the work of the Christian era. In the Christian era, how many groups of people are called? How many? <laughs> Three! Do you see that in Isaiah 59? My spirit who is in you and my words that I have put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth. And then from the mouths of your children, second group, and from the mouths of their descendants. From this time on and forever. The ends of the earth. Do you see that? This is why the you and the you are there refers to the people of God. In the Christian era, divided into two, three groups. Who are the three groups? Acts 2, 38, 39. Then Peter said to them, repent. And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Yahushua the Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want to go back to Isaiah. If you notice Isaiah 59, 20, right? It says, those who are going to be included among those who will receive the Spirit are those who repent of their Sins. This is why in Acts 2.38, Apostle Peter speaks about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And who are they who will receive the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit? Because if you go back to Isaiah 59, in verse 21, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says Yahuwah, my spirit. It's about the promise of who will receive the spirit and who are they. It says here, for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call the three groups. Who are the first? The Jews. Second? The Gentiles. The third? Those who are going to be called during the ends of the earth. That's us. This is why Isaiah 59, 20 to 21, does not refer to the family of Brother Felix Manalo. No, it refers to the family of God in the Christian era. Okay? And because God has given a promise, what can we expect? We will receive the Holy Spirit. Brethren, we want to direct you now to Yahuwah himself. 
and to his son, Yahusha. The purpose of this prophecy is not to point us to a family. No, we have to raise the banner of Yahuwah. Do not raise the banner of Manalo or any other name. No, we must raise the banner of Yahuwah. That's what we must do. We have to proclaim that we belong to him and that we belong to his son. That we can receive the spirit of our God. Because the promise is to you, to your children, and to us who are from afar off. But from the third group, what's going to happen to them? Let's read the final passage of our study, Zechariah 13, 9. I will bring the one-third to the fire. We'll refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. The third group that will come from the ends of the earth, they will go through the fire. What will happen with the, with the majority? They will go against God. They will rebel against God. But there will be a very small remnant that will remain that has been refined and tested. And what will they do? They will call my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, Yahuwah is my God. This is why, brethren, Isaiah 59, 20 to 21, it speaks about us. God's promise is his words will continue to be given to us, even if there's no longer an executive minister, even if there's no longer but a Felix Monalo. Because it's not their work, it's the work of the Father. This is why Isaiah 59, 20 to 21 is reason to all the more learn the words of God. You see that? Because it has been promised. My words and my spirit will not be taken away from you. From the ends of the earth. This is why even if we are believing and having faith in the words of God recorded in scripture that was not taught by Brother Ryan Manalo or was not taught by Brother Felix Manalo. We believe it because it was taught by means of the Holy Spirit, the Father. This is why today we proclaim Yahuwah to be our God. And you know what? When we proclaim Yahuwah is my God, what are we doing? What are we doing? We're making Yahuwah our banner. And so Zechariah 13.9 is also in fulfillment of Isaiah 59.19 when it says, Yahuwah, his spirit will raise up a standard against the enemy. And this was fulfilled as we proclaim the name of our Father. Okay, that is our lesson. Let us all stand, brethren, and we shall pray together. Almighty Yahuwah Abba. Amen. Thank you so much. Yes, Father. Your prophecies, your words indeed are true. Yes. Yahuwah Nitsi, yes. our defender and protector. Amen. We need you now, Father. Yes, Father. Because of what we face throughout the earth. Yes. We know it's not going to be easy. Yes. Because during these end times, trials will break out. Yes. Some of your elect may be affected. Yes. But we have faith and trust in you. Yes. May you send your Holy Spirit. Yes. For we place our complete hope in your mighty hands. Amen. Father, thank you for your gift. The yes. gift of your words and the gift of your Holy Spirit. Yes. You promised as recorded in Isaiah 59. Even during this time, 
Oh God, by means of your spirit, you will teach us your words. We believe in your words. And so we have faith in you. Help us in our fight against this pandemic. Who are affecting so many people throughout the world. Including perhaps some of our loved ones. Father, have mercy upon us. Yahuwah, heal your people. For you are the greatest physician of all. Lord Yahusha, we also come to you in prayer. Because you are our redeemer. May you continue to strengthen our faith. Help us to always follow you wherever we may be. Though we cannot see you physically, we believe you're praying for us, interceding on our behalf. If Moses' intercession was that powerful, all the more your work of prayer from heaven above, pray for all of us, intercede for us, that we will prevail in our fight. We believe, Father, you have listened to our prayers. You have protected and blessed your people throughout the world. We ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha the Christ. Amen. Amen.